Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, Nick and I talk to Dr. Kristin Masco about building well-being in the workplace. Kristin is a workplace effectiveness leader who works at the intersection of psychology and organizational impact. She has a PhD in neuroscience from Stanford, and she worked at Google for 15 years, where she led business finance teams and was the inaugural director of employee mental health and well-being. She's an expert in the intersection of workplace productivity and well-being, and she focuses on the collective and systemic factors that enable both of these. She describes that her career has been shaped by two enduring passions, understanding the nature and limitations of the human mind, and finding efficient and pragmatic ways to get things done. The key themes of this discussion are what burnout is, and how to reduce the risk of burnout and to recover from it, and how to create the conditions to thrive in the workplace. We talk about many fascinating areas concerning workplace well-being and how to avoid burnout in this episode, such as the definition of burnout as an occupational phenomenon rather than a personal phenomenon based on the World Health Organization's definition of burnout, the relation between work, productivity, and well-being, measures for burnout, in particular what's called the Maslach Burnout Inventory associated with the work of Christina Maslach, Kristen's definition of burnout as an emergent property of an interpersonal network, a definition she's reached through her work on workplace well-being, what exactly that means and how that helps understand burnout and workplace well-being better. We discuss the fact that increasing work has been created in workplaces nowadays that isn't high-value work, yet we're spending a lot more time, attention and energy on it and we're getting highly stressed by it and how that contributes to burnout. We talk about burnout across large organizations compared to solo workers and how it shows in different ways in solo workers, for example, in the work of solopreneurs. We talk about the relationship between perfectionism and burnout and how this relates to what's called the big five personality traits, particularly conscientiousness. We discuss how we see burnout most often in the caring professions, such as the medical professions and the possible reasons for this. Kristen draws attention to Gallup poll studies that estimate that 50% of the workforce worldwide are currently showing signs of burnout. We talk about Kristen's background in neuroscience and psychology and how she's applied this into her current work on workplace well-being and also her work in her during her time at Google. We talk about the role of psychological safety in workplace well-being, how to express and communicate kindness with accountability with colleagues in the workplace. We discuss Kristen's awesome new podcast, Yourself at Work. And finally, Kristen puts forward her recommendation, one of her key recommendations to promote workplace well-being, which is to ask work teams about friction, how it's showing up in their lives and how we can reduce it. It's an awesome conversation. We hope you love it. This is our conversation with Dr. Kristen Masco. Hey, Kristen, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you? It's good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's our pleasure to, to welcome you to the podcast. So you are an expert in workplace well-being, and that's one of the key areas we're going to talk about today. And a particular area of interest to you is burnout, how we can mitigate the risk of it, help people overcome it in workplace environments. And in a recent talk for the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard's Flourishing Network, which I really enjoyed, you discussed workplace burnout. So to get us going, what is burnout? How do you define it? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. 
So burnout was defined in 2019 by the World Health Organization as an occupational phenomenon. So not a medical phenomenon, but an occupational phenomenon that is characterized by exhaustion, which I think is what people often think of when they think of burnout, just kind of a sense of I'm I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I can't go on. So exhaustion, cynicism. So this is the feeling of not having a sense of purpose to the work that you're doing, feeling cynical towards the, the workplace, your colleagues, your manager. And then the final component is reduced professional efficacy. So this is someone who historically has been performing and able to perform in their role, and they're just not as effective as as they once were. And it's important that like all three criteria are there for burnout. It's not just being tired. It's kind of being tired and starting to become disengaged from the work that you're doing. So I'm too tired to do it. I don't believe I can do it. And even if I do have the energy and believe, it's not going to matter. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And And occupational. That's an important distinction, it seems like. Yeah. 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 And it can it can lead to mental health issues. So it can lead to depression or anxiety, but in and of itself, it's not an individual medical condition. It's the context of the the sort of person the intersection between the person and their role. But it's kind of how the person relates to the group. And of course, all of us are, you know, we're bringing our whole selves to work. So things that are happening outside of work can contribute. But it's really about that relationship between the individual and the whole. And Christina Maslach, who's kind of the the foundational research on workplace burnout, sounds like you're familiar with her work. She describes it as there being like six mismatches between the person and the workplace. And that idea of mismatch, I think, is a really important one because it's it's not it's not one or the other. It's not just the person or just the job. It's how they relate to each other. And the mismatches that she talks about are the first one that we always think about is just the workload. Like, I feel like I just have too much to do. But it's important to remember that's that's not the only one. It's it's one of six potential ways in which someone can feel burned out. Another factor that has come out in her research is a sense of control. So so sort of feeling like it's really important to us to feel a sense of efficacy and like we can we can make decisions that are reasonable within our role and, and be able to affect change. And when you lose that sense of control, it can lead to burnout. The next two relate to to sort of the social environment at work. So their rewards and community. Rewards includes things like compensation, but it's not just that. It's a sense of being recognized and being noticed. And when I when I do something great, someone cares. You know, like it, it's acknowledged in some way. I, I feel that acknowledged by the group. And community is is um, you know what is it like to spend the day with with my colleagues or the other members of my organization? Do I feel included? Do I feel accepted? And then the final two are more on kind of a a moral lens. So those are fairness and values. So fairness is, do people who are doing the highest impact work get promoted or or get the the big projects? Is there a sense that, that we all have an equal chance to really have a big impact on the organization? And then values is, do I feel like I'm working towards a greater good that I care about, right? Like, am I proud of what my organization is doing in the world? And so all those factors together, if any one of them is off place, you could have a reasonable workload and feel good about your autonomy, but just feel like it's not fair who gets promoted and who gets recognized. And that can lead to this sense of, of burnout. So it's important to really look across the six factors. Gotcha. So I, I just want to ask one follow-up to my previous question. In now in connection yeah. with, so just to sort of clarify, so imagine someone is, is lonely at work, they, they lack community perhaps because they work remotely all the time, right? And they, they don't go to workplace or the other people working there. 
but they're also lonely in their personal life, which would exacerbate that factor. Does the latter not get measured when we're assessing burnout? Would you not ask someone a question about that if someone's trying to measure burnout? Is that part just put aside because it's purely occupational? Yeah, so it's a good question. I, it, it's measured in the context of the occupation. So are, how are you feeling with your colleagues? Are you feeling connected? But I, I completely agree with the point that you're making is like your personal life is going to affect that interaction. So if you're feeling lonely in your life in general, and then on top of that, you're not having a connection at work, that's going to could kind of push you over that threshold to where it becomes problematic in your work. But if you imagine maybe you're feeling lonely in your personal life, but you love your colleagues and that's a big source of meaning, that's going to be a net positive in terms of how how you view the, the role of your job. Somewhat domain specific. Somewhat. With yeah. some overlaps, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So we want to keep going into some of the nuances, I think, of burnout eventually. But you've also got extensive experience existing maybe kind of on the other end of that spectrum, right? Or thinking hard about the other end of that spectrum, which, you know, I'd be happy to have you define it for us. But it sounds like this synergy between kind of productivity or performance, right, and well-being. And, you know, you've got, I've read a couple of different articles, but big proponent that those two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they I think they're mutually reinforcing. So would you just walk us through a little bit, if burnout is sort of like the extreme terrible end of, say, occupational well-being and productivity or lack thereof, what's sort of the extreme positive or pleasant end? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love this question because I think so often we can, you know, organizations can think of it as an either or, like either I'm going to have a really productive workforce that's working hard and, you know, beating their deadlines, or I'm going to have a happy organization where the well-being is high, but maybe the productivity is low. I think there's really kind of a false dichotomy and people, you can see organizations swing back and forth between focusing on one or the other. And Nick, to your point, all of the research shows that they, they really do move together and that there's people who are have high well-being. There's a strong correlation between well-being and productivity. People who have higher well-being are more productive and vice versa. If you're more productive, higher well-being. And I think when you when you sort of think about that, when we think about it just intuitively in terms of our own work experience, you know, we just remind ourselves that like as people, we actually, you know, on some level, we'd like to work. Like it's a very satisfying thing to put an effort and see the results of that effort. And I think sometimes there can be this perception that you have to, you know, discipline someone into working. And, you know, we know that there's a lot of really deep intrinsic motivators, autonomy, mastery, and purpose kind of being, being classic ones, where there, it's a very, very satisfying thing to work hard on something, particularly to work hard on something with a group of people who you respect and admire, and you feel like they respect and admire you. And to see the results of that work is like one of the kind of highest feelings of, of being a person. I think it's a very deeply embedded experience. And so I think when it's going well, it's all kind of resonating together where you're the individuals are in kind of that sweet spot on the on the stress curve where you're, you know, you're not so overloaded that you're feeling, you know, overwhelmed and, and anxious, but you're not so underloaded that you're feeling sort of disengaged and bored. You're in that you're in the flow state. You're in that sweet spot of engagement. So it's really good for productivity. And it's also a very satisfying place to be. And so I think you know, I think particularly as organizations are, are thinking about well-being is just becoming an increasing focus for the workplace. I think there's a shift that's starting to happen and that needs to happen of like, instead of talking about just well-being as this thing on the side, that we just run programs and they're kind of like separate from the day-to-day -day work, really integrating into like how we work together, making that be a way that is, is conducive to people thriving and, and the, work, the work being done. 
There's a great episode of Work Life, Adam Grant show. I don't know if you're a fan of that at all. But I love that show, yeah. Yeah, so there's, I can't remember the name of the episode, but they're speaking with a woman who kind of moved across different fields, ended up in video games at one point, and then eventually basically is running women's sport for Nike. And she just talked about goodness of fit, right? Mm, that when there's a bad nice. fit, it's not a me problem, it's not a them problem, it's an us problem. And that's what I that's what I keep hearing. But it, it kind of leads me to another question. So John and I, you know, have done similar kind of work consulting, right, advising in some of these spaces. There's a short walk between flourishing science and IO psych and some of those other things. And a lot of times when you're talking with execs, leaders across different environments, they seem to sometimes think that it is, let's call it the employees, the people under them and their mindset their perception, their experience of reality. And I think there's probably some science to that a bit, right? But at the same time, they're sort of letting themselves off the hook. And if you talk to employees, <laughs> they're going to say basically the opposite. It's the environment. Bricks are constantly falling on me, right? And, and I guess the question, it's hard to quantify that, but do you think both pieces are important to the burnout productivity puzzle? In other words, there's there's a me piece to it, but there's a we piece as well? Yeah, yeah, no, I love that question. And, and I absolutely do think that both are there. One of the ways I think of it as kind, is kind of like concentric circles. So at the center, you have hmm. just me as an individual. And then the next layer out would be the team, like so maybe 50 to 100 people, like kind of the team that you're working with yeah. on a regular basis. And then the outer layer would be the organization. So this could be a you know company, a university, a public health system, like just the kind of tens of thousands of people that are on the same mission. And I think they each play a role. And I think I think of the me stuff as as necessary but not sufficient. So like I think absolutely like we need every one of us at the end of the day, we are all responsible for our mental health and well-being. And there's a lot that we can do as individuals, you know, everything from, you know, diet and exercise and sleep and therapy and resilience and, you know, cognitive behavioral, like just, just the yep. range of yep. things of just like, how can we make ourselves more resilient to be able to, to be in different situations and thrive in those situations. But I really believe that's necessary, but not sufficient. And um, I think particularly that middle level, like the working group is, I think is the most important and the most challenging. I'll just briefly touch on the outer layer. I think the outer layer, the organizational level, like the goal there is like, you just want to signal it's important. Like we, we care, we care about you as human beings. We care about your well-being. We want you to be thriving, but it's, it's really hard at that outer level to, to kind of get into the day-to-day. -day. It's that middle level, the team, where it's what you were saying, like if we feel like the bricks keep coming down, I think that's where a lot of the really kind of hard work of coming up with like, that's where you kind of get into the nitty gritty of how do we structure our workplace and our processes to get things done in a way that is sustainable not try to pizza party this thing away. Yes, right. yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. No, I love that. And I think that was as just is, is so often the tendency of just like, oh, let's just give you great benefits or let's let's have a party or let's, you know, and it's just like that. I think people are just really feeling frustrated. You just hear people say this all the time. Like it, it starts to feel hypocritical. Like if you're just telling me you care about my well-being, but then I, I can't do my job in a reasonable number of hours. And a lot of it does come down to the guts of the role. And may maybe this might be a segue too. We can talk about like kind of the network drivers of burnout, but I think a lot of it comes to how we how we work together. Yeah, well, that's that's the segue I was thinking we might move into this now because I mean, in your talk, the Flourishing Network, you 
you argue that people tend to view workplace burnout as an individual issue. The individual is exhausted, lacks community, lacks autonomy, let's say. But you interestingly argue that it's actually best understood as an emergent property of an interpersonal network. So that's an interesting definition. Could you unpack that a bit? Tell us, tell us more about this view and how, how you reach this view. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I reached it partly through just like kind of examining my own experience working in a large organization and then over time have got, there's more, more data that supports it. But basically, you know, a lot of the traditional guidance around well-being is personal things you can do around, you know, resilience, mindfulness. And there's also some around setting boundaries. Like, and so, you know, say, all right, I'm just not going to work after 6 p.m. And that's my boundary. And that, that's how I, that's how it's going to be. And what I noticed was, you know, I would come out of one of those trainings fully intending, that's it. Like, these are the hours I work. And then I would find I was working outside of those hours. And so I really was asking myself, like, why, why am I doing that? And the, the kind of classic line that a lot of people say is like, oh, it's not brain surgery. Like, no one's going to die if you don't send that email. I was like, it's not that I think it's brain surgery. It's not that I think anyone's going to die. And I, what I realized was that it's because of this, it's a social phenomenon. <laughs> it's basically because, uh, like, as an individual at a really large organization, I'm working on, say, 20 projects at a time. And every project I'm working on has, say, 20 people, just for even number, you know, 20, 20 people working on it. And so we kind of have this like matrix combination of like to push any one project over the finish line, we need all, all of the 20 people on that project to be coordinated and on the same timeline and so forth. And I think sometimes we have this false narrative of like, oh, it's, it's a company and you're creating a thousand widgets and the company got really greedy and they want you to create 1200 widgets and they just want more, more, more. Whereas I think it's actually more like to create a widget requires the input of a lot of different people who are all working on different projects and it becomes kind of a coordination problem. And so what I noticed with myself, like, well, why am I kind of working outside of what hours I want to work? It was, it was a very social phenomenon of like, I know all the work that went into this project. I don't want to be the bottleneck, right? Like, I don't want to be the one person that made us miss the deadline. And I think a lot of that's good and that's healthy, right? Like, the, like we're social beings. We work as part of social groups. But then I started thinking like, okay, but we're all collectively saying this is too much. And everyone, it's almost like an arms race. Like everyone feels like they're, they're working too much. And I think what my kind of current theory on it is that we've had this, in the past 20, 30 years, there's been just an explosion in the ease with which we can collaborate. We have email and Slack and chat and ping and, you know, you name it all, we're Zoom, like all the different ways that we can meet. It's, we sort of forget this is relatively new. This is in the past, you know, couple of decades that it's been this easy. And I think we haven't had, and so I think what that does is it, it removes any barrier to, to requesting another person's time, right? Like, and so I can just be like, hey, I'm working on this proposal. Like, John and Nick, what do you think? Give me, send me your thoughts by tomorrow because I want to publish it. And that that's great if it's the three of us. But then when you start multiplying that by thousands of people and, and you kind of have an environment where it's not really clear at the end of the day, who is the decision maker? And like, what is the, you know, like, you start having this network where we're all generating each other's work. And it's it's with good intentions. We're trying to be collaborative and inclusive. And, you know, it's with good intentions, but we actually, there's no, there's no check on the amount of time we spend collaborating. And then that really starts to expand because it becomes unconstrained. You know, if you imagine like pre 
pre-internet, like what does it mean to get the opinion of 10 people? Well, you have to get those 10 people in the same place at the same time. That's not a trivial task. So there's a real world limitation. So you've removed that limitation. And I think we've created a lot of work that's not even necessarily high value work. It's just coordination costs. And that's not great for productivity or well-being. And so that's where I, I really kind of came to see like, there's certainly things I can do as an individual, but like I, I can't, this, this has to be a group change. Like we have to set up group sort of norms around how we collaborate so that we don't clobber each other with our requests. Have you had a chance to read A World Without Email? Yes. Cal Newport, Cal, Cal Newport, yeah. Yes. Cal Newport is amazing on this. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're, you're going through everything and I'm thinking hyperactive hive mind, hyperactive yes, hive mind. It's just, just constant franticness as a really good case study of just how policy is going to impact well-being, right? Like we don't email on weekends is like one simple thing that people could potentially start with. Right. But, you know, so what, that's where I want to go. How do you combat some of this hyperactivity? And maybe this is more nuanced than we want to get, but we want to give people strategies, whether they're kind of on the bottom of the food chain or the top, how do you start to address things like that at a policy level? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think like the, and I, I love that book by Cal Newport, hyperactive. Yeah, so good. He, he, write, yeah. he writes yeah. a lot about this. I think a couple thoughts. So first, I think what we just did like here, like kind of just defining the problem, I think is important. If you think about something like climate change, like if you're not sure what's causing it, your solutions aren't going to be very effective. So I think there's some of like step back, like, all right, this is a network problem. This is a collective problem. And then I think there can be a range of solutions underneath it. So I'll share some thoughts, but I think it's I think there's probably others. I think it will be an iterative process of like what works and what doesn't. I think a huge one is Leslie Perlow, who's also at Harvard, has this concept of collective time management. Mm. And it was actually formed, interestingly, she's a researcher now, but she initially worked at a management consulting firm. So she kind of had this real world experience of the sort of social pressure. And so she came up with this idea where, you know, we're all familiar with individual time management but collective time management, like realizing that we actually are each other's work and how can we more formally coordinate when and how we interact. And I think to realize the benefit that you have sort of have to understand the problem as we've just discussed, because I think the first reaction is like, I don't want anyone telling me how to spend my time. I want, you know, we all want flexibility, right? Of course, but like, but just adding some elements of coordination. And so I'll give a specific example. She did this study with BCG, the management consulting firm, where, you know, management consulting is notorious for people to work all the time. Yeah, and it's burnout very culture. Cli- yeah. yeah, burnout culture. Yeah. It's very client-centric, yeah. like you have to be available. And so she did what seems like a very simple intervention, but where it was basically like, I want to say it was, you know, like a working group of 10 people. And each person had a night every other week where after 5 p.m. they were offline. Which sounds like, oh, that can't be that hard, right? Like, you know, it's kind of a... But when, when she first proposed this, everyone was like, no way. This is like, we're not, this isn't how our work you know, we need to be responsive, everything's going to break. But what what they did was they did it in a very equitable and formal and structured way. So it wasn't just like, oh, when you want to take the night off, take the night off. It was like, next Tuesday, Nick is off. Then the following Wednesday, John is off. Like it was a very formal thing. And what that meant was that the team had to coordinate. Like it's not going to happen by accident. Like you have to sort of coordinate, okay, if Nick's going to be off, I need to know enough about what he's working on to cover if something comes up, right? And so what they found with this was first, everyone loved it. Like they loved the predictability of like when they'd be off and versus having to always be checking. But then two, there were all these kind of halo effects where like the team had to coordinate more because you couldn't 
rely on that crutch of everyone's just one text away, right? Like you actually had to formalize it. And so I think a little bit of formalization, I'm not talking about like super rigid schedules, but like a little bit of like, yeah, like for you said, we don't email on weekends. Like we don't have meetings from 12 to one and we're we're available for meetings on these times. Like we're available between nine and 12, like, and it doesn't have to be the entire week, but some sense of like, this is time when we collaborate. This is time when we do not collaborate and we do focused work. And then of course, personal time as well. And just acknowledging that that some of that has to be done at the collective level. That's the piece right there. It's It seems, because you've now made, I think, multiple statements that I just want to highlight because I think they're nuanced and important. What I don't hear you saying is that well-being means complete autonomy. I do what I want, whenever I want, however I want, with whomever I want. And I always feel how I want to feel. I hear some teamwork. I hear some sacrifice. I hear some compromise. I hear some, yeah, we actually enjoy some stress provided it's meaningful stress, not just useless, wasted stress, right? Are, are we understanding that correctly when we think about this burnout sort of well-being productivity spectrum? It's not necessarily about pleasantness, if you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I think it is a bit of a shift. For, I think we, we tend to have a very individualist mindset. And I'm not, I mean, of course, we're all individuals. We want a lot of autonomy. I'm not like going to the extreme, but it's a shift from the individual to the collective mindset of like, all right, we're a group of people and we're trying to get something done. And like, and we, we have a goal to accomplish and we want to do it in a way that feels balanced and where we feel like we're human beings and we can rest and recover. But we, we also need to coordinate. Like we need to, I can't be, you know, hey, I can't meet with any, you know, like we need to have some level of coordination. And so I think there is a little bit of a mindset shift from the individual to the collective and broadly the collective, like the collective as a group of people that's trying to accomplish something and the collective as a group of people that wants to rest and that that wants to recover. And like one analogy I, I love to think about a lot of times with resilience, people will talk about athletes, right? Like you don't just work, you don't just train all the time, you rest and recover, you rest and recover like a runner or something. And I think an analogy that's really helpful is to think of team sports, like to think of like a soccer team. Like I think a lot of times the modern workplace is like, it's like, it's a soccer team that's like in a continuous World Cup, right? Like it's always high pressure. It's always the most important moment. Everyone's like high stress. And then periodically someone just gets injured and then just like walks off the field because there's, there was no break. And then the team is down one part. Like it's just like, it's not structured. Right. And how does the soccer team really work? Like they, you rest, you recover as a group. Like you have a game, you have an on season, you have an off-season, you have a system for substitution. Like, all right, if someone, if someone needs to take time off, great. But then rather than just spreading their work around the group, we've planned for that. Like we have extras, we have buffer. And so really that mindset of like, how do groups collectively rest and recover, I think is sort of the shift that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Hi, friends. Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most, of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance, 
for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. So just to clarify this view, so I really like this view, and I just want to clarify, though, the idea that burnout's best understood as an emergent property of the interpersonal network, is your view that that's kind of the most common manifestation of burnout today because of workplace environments, but nonetheless, there are other ways people can burn out. Because what I was thinking, which are also quite common, because I was thinking when you described situation when you're leading teams, like 20 teams, there were 20 people on each team, I think in many cases of people who burn out that don't have that kind of environment, people are perhaps like freelancers that aren't leading any teams. Yeah. Maybe they're not even yeah. in any team. They're like freelance writers, for example, right? But they burn out because they are working such long hours, the unpredictability of the work and so on. Is your claim that the type of burnout you describe is the most common, but those are the types too? Yeah, thank you for that. That's a super important point. And th- yeah, yeah, thanks for that clarification. A lot of what I'm talking about, I would say, is for large organizations. So maybe like when you're getting into the hundreds of thousands of people, I think that's where you start to get this like cost of coordination and where you're spending a lot of time collaborating. And then that can be a source of burnout. But it's a really, really good point. I think that's like a super important point to highlight. That's not the only way people burn out. It was more that I felt like there was a gap in talking about that component of burnout. But you're absolutely right. Like I can be, you know, a freelancer or writer working for myself and burnout, but you would still have those same characteristics, right? Like, and so it would be this feeling of, I have a lot of work. I don't feel control. A huge component of burnout is the cynicism and lack of efficacy. Like when you can't see the link between the work you're doing and the impact that you're having is where you get burnout. So you could be working for your own thing and you're working a lot and you feel like you're kind of grinding and it's not really resonating and you're like, ah, is this really making a difference? I'm starting to feel cynical and maybe I'm not good at that. Like that's when it starts to get into burnout is when it's just kind of pushing without seeing the impact. But it's a really, really important point that a lot of what I'm saying is for large organizations. Yeah, no, thanks. Absolutely. And what made me think of that was, uh, I'm sure all three of us know many people who have burned out. I certainly know many people who have, but I also myself have burned out at least three times in my life. And I've never led teams of 20 people <laughs> or been in multiple teams of 20, leading multiple teams of 20 people. And I was just thinking, yeah, so this, this is most common now, but certainly not in my case and cases of people I know at least. Yeah. Are some of these triggers resonating for you, for you though, John? Yeah, I was just going to ask that, yeah. <laughs> Work overload, yeah. but it and, and what I thought about the freelance writer and the person who works alone though is like, in my own case, the work overload is often self-imposed. Mm. And so what you said earlier, uh, Kristen, about, you know, shutting, shutting off the email at 5 p.m., you know, no one's going to die if it replies to that email to convince yourself of that. I thought, yeah, it's found really hard. So it's, yeah, the it's self-imposed work overload, if you like. You can just stop, but you don't stop. Yeah. The other thing, just, just to kind of play around with that example you gave is like, so, so maybe it, it, with you or, the, or a person in that role, maybe they're working as an individual. They're not in leading the, the 20 teams or whatever. 
but they still have that network of people, right? Like the email that's not replied to, like that is someone who I would say that's the broader network of people that you're collaborating with in doing that role. And so I think there is still a little bit of that sense of like this inbound, how do I interact with this group of people? Clients, students, you always had somebody to answer to or respond to or produce for. Absolutely. Yeah. It's still interpersonal, whether or not it's all one, part of one organization. I like that distinction, Kristen. It's still a network effect. Yeah, I guess I, I'm just also thinking of like the the artist who's obsessed with their work and just works themselves to the ground for intrinsically motivated reasons, but perhaps they burn out through that. But these are perhaps rare, much rarer cases. I'm not sure of the data on. So I'd love to ask a question about that. And I'll, I'll put a, an affectionate label on John. Do you think perfectionists burn out more frequently, Kristen? John's definitely a perfectionist. <laughs> and it's a, it's John, I think you would admit it's a double edged oh, yeah, sword. Yeah, yeah, we had this exact yeah. similar conversation with Homeric Kabir about perfectionism burnout. Yeah, this came out then. Yes, yes. I'm also a prof- <laughs> recovering perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> recovering perfectionist. I love that you're overcoming it. Brilliant. Yes, I'm forgetting the study, but but there are definitely it definitely correlates with with perfection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they, I think there's a study on like kind of the big five personality traits and which ones are most likely to burn out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Okay, that's high high in conscientiousness, maybe exactly like extreme, exactly. extremely yeah. high. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because even even within like so we're sort of describing all right. There's this network of people. Maybe it's your organization. Maybe it's your sort of external colleagues or whoever you're coordinating with. It's sort of the sense of like, and I care, like I want to do it well. And I, I care about these people. Sure. And like the other, the place where you see the most burnout is in caring professions. I should have mentioned that earlier. So like teachers yeah. and doctors, right? And it's this sense of like, I care, like I, I want to do the right thing and I can't always do it. Like, you know, like you hear with physicians a lot, like I became a physician because I want to heal people and I want to heal them well. And then given the constraints of the insurance system or whatever, I have 15 minute visits and I feel like I'm not able to do my best work. Right. And so it's this it's kind of this block between like what the impact you want to have on the world and then the limitations that prevent you from having it. So, yeah, I do think there's a relationship there for sure. We have a lot of clients that end up in different ways coming to us, teachers, educational organizations, first responders, law firms. These are all different fields that it seems like are burning out or leaving their field at minimum at rapid rates, maybe before they burn out or because they burn out. It it seems, I don't know if I looked at trend data, but do you feel like it's increasing this propensity? Just generally for burnout? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I know Gallup has done some studies of this, like particularly just post COVID, like it was a big increase in burnout and it hasn't, hasn't recovered yet. I mean, Gallup has estimates. I want to say it's like fifty percent of the workforce is that high now. Wow. Okay. Signs of burnout. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And yeah, connected with what you said about medical professionals in, in one of our first episodes with Matt Lee and David Johnson, Matt described research on self-reported workplace well-being, and in one of the studies he reported on, which was a huge study, medical students and residents had the lowest self-reported physical and mental health given a variety of factors he described the the main factor for this was that there's a kind of a, an emotional and mental load that the that the only a, a limit that the body can handle and in that kind of role where you're unsure of what you're doing if you're new to the role so you're a medical student and you're thrown into these high pressure situations and you're doing that for very long hours day in day out that that has a huge emotional and physical toll yes yes 
Yeah, one other thing I've, I haven't gone to medical school myself, but one other thing I've just read about the community is I think they're trying to adjust this, but there's there's not always the forum to just say, I don't know, and this is hard, and I'm not sure, and now a patient dies. And just like, I think there's a, a kind of a, a culture of like, having to act more confident than you might be, particularly when you're getting trained, because people want confident doctors, right? Like, you, you don't want someone that's wondering if they made the right call. Whereas, you know, medicine isn't different than any other field where it's it's probabilities and it's likelihoods and you don't know for sure, right? And so I've heard that that contributes to the sense of like, I, and I can't even tell anyone, right? Like, I can't even tell anyone that I'm not sure. There's a really good TED talk, I forget who gave it, but it was about physician errors. And there's a, he's a physician who is now doing this whole work of like, every physician has had patients die that if they had made a different call wouldn't have and no one talks about it. And so he's really trying to open the conversation of like, this is hard to go through, but we all go through it. And it doesn't need to be like a sort of the, the sense of isolation and shame, I think makes all of these things worse when you feel like you're suffering alone. It sounds like suppressing the unpleasant affect associated with it, understandably, as a defense mechanism. Because yeah. if you had to live with that consistently, I imagine that'd be a really difficult thing to navigate day in and day out, right? Almost like shut it down so that I I just don't have to deal with it. And in doing so, you're only exacerbating the problem. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and it's one of those classic things where it actually, I think having the surveys and stats can help where it's like everyone feels like, oh, I'm the only one that's burned out. And it's like actually half the sure. workforce is burned out, you know, and sure. it can kind of in the same as any kind of thing we're struggling with mentally, it just helps normalize it and be like, all right, this is a part of being human. And what are, what are the ways we can better manage it? Yeah, yeah. Right. It makes me think a little bit, and I don't know if you've studied this, this might be an overly sort of nuanced question, but there's so much good research out there on kind of paradoxically, like taking care of others is one of the best ways to take care of yourself. You know, just yesterday, we we're chatting with Gabriella Kellerman, we're going through an interesting study on how basically doing for others changed our perception of time, and actually can make us feel like we have more time. This is just one example of many Stephen posts, like why good things happen to good people like physical health, mental health, like take care of others. But then I juxtapose it with like we mentioned Adam Grant earlier and like these these organizational givers, right, that give too much, that do too much for others amidst the hyperactive high mind. They step in, they take the load, they do the project, right? They don't self-regulate. They don't set up those boundaries. So on the one hand, it's like, oh, do for others is one of the best ways to sort of like take care of yourself and lower blood pressure and increase oxytocin, all those good things. On the other hand, it's Where's that line where you're doing too much, right? And it's no longer self-care. And again, maybe that's too nuanced of a question, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that if you've seen any research data or, or maybe just your, your professional experience. Yeah, yeah. This is making me think of Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. Sure, sure. And she has a lot of research and I certainly like sort of like you have to start inward first, like having that compassion for yourself as the foundation and then it overflows to other people. I think when you're sort of grounding in the self, the compassion for myself, like what is, what is too much? When am I pushing too hard? When do I need a break? If that's kind of the grounding and then you feel like that's firm and then it's overflowing to help other people. I think that's kind of the thriving state, but when it's helping other people at the expense of yourself is where it sort of slips into burnout. And it's kind of an, it's an unintuitive idea because I think our culture has sent such strong message that it's selfish to take care of ourselves. And it's just not the case. Like it's, it's really, there's a lot of research showing that you, when you care for yourself, you actually, it spills over and you, you then, it makes you want to care for others as well. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Great conversation. Loving this. Okay. So you mentioned when I asked you about clarifying which is the most common type of workout, you said, you know, well, this is more common for these organizations with, with tens of thousands of people. And of course, you have experience working with these kinds of organizations. For example, you worked at Google for 15 years and you were the inaugural director of employee mental health and well-being. And you held that position from 2021 until recently. And in that role, you led employee mental health and well-being for 190,000 full-time staff worldwide. Right. So huge responsibility in that role. Now, Nick asked you earlier about how you think of the relationship between productivity and well-being. In in that particular role in particular, but also your wider work, what have you learned about the relationship between that, these huge organizations? Yeah, 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 definitely. For a lot of my time at Google, I was in finance roles and kind of in core business roles. And then, but my background is in psychology and neuroscience. And so that this role leading mental health and well-being was a really exciting way for me to kind of apply like what I had learned just working in these organizations and trying to get things done with some of the training of like, how does the human mind work? And like, and how does that come into play in the workplace? And so a lot of what we were doing on that team, I mean, first and foremost, it was a benefits team. So we were delivering mental health benefits to employees. So things like, you know, EAP and mental health care and, and resources and destigmatization campaigns and, and kind of really centering on the individual, like making sure that people had what they needed in terms of their own mental health benefits. But then we were really starting to move more upstream. And so moving from just treatment of individual mental health needs uh, more upstream to what we've been talking about in this conversation is like, how do groups of people work together in ways that can be effective and, and productive? And so we were doing that through looking at internal and external research, um, showing the relationship between well-being and productivity, and then trying to shift. I think sometimes the well-being conversation it can unintentionally reinforce this pendulum. Like, so you feel like, okay, the company's really focused on productivity. So we need to talk about like only well-being. And then maybe we'll like meet somewhere in the middle, right? Like, you know, like it's only productivity. So let's talk about only well-being. Who cares if we ever get our job done? And then maybe we'll compromise in the middle and we'll have a thriving workplace. And one of the things we were really doing on our team is trying to bring those two conversations together. Like groups of people, you're coming together in the context of a company to try to accomplish some goal. And this gets back to a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. Like, I don't think workplace well-being is just everyone doing whatever they want, whenever they want. I think that actually leads to more stress and lower productivity and more chaos and that there has to be kind of some level of coordination across teams. And so just like one kind of concrete example of that, there had been a lot of detachment trainings and we, we were developed, we started developing detachment trainings for teams where like the team would come together and say, all right, as an organization, what do we collectively have to deliver? And then as human beings, what do we want just for our you know, humanity and rest and recovery and, and predictability, our schedule? And then like, what, where's that intersection? Because there really is intersection in that Venn diagram. Where's that intersection and what kind of team norms can we put in place so that we are meeting our customer needs, but doing it in a way that's sustainable? And an example of that, as much as we were just talking about the medical profession being burned out, an example of this that I think is very intuitive is if you think about an ER. And if you just like think about sort of with, with an ER, how absurd it would be to only focus on productivity or well-being. So like only focusing on productivity would be like, well, people get 
there's, there's accidents at two in the morning on a Saturday night. You can't have the hospital be empty. Like we always have to be available. So then every physician is like constantly in the hospital ready for the accident. That would be absurd. And then conversely, if you focus on well-being, like I want to spend time with my family. So the ER is open nine to five, like that doesn't work. So what is the solution? I mean, there's a very, very formal system of schedules and on-call and it's, it's just something you coordinate on and, and you can negotiate and this is my weekend. I have a family reunion and whatever, but you, you do it as a group. Like you don't like hope that it works out, that everyone will kind of do what they need to do and that work will get done. You, there's some level of coordination. And so you really have to look team by team. I, I sort of say, I think some teams are more like soccer teams where it's, or actually, sorry, what we were just talking about was more like a relay, you know, like a baton toss. Like, all right, someone always has to be in the ER. I'm going to leave at 6 a.m. You join. I'll pass the baton. We'll do the patient handover. Some teams have that kind of work. And then other teams are more like a soccer team where, like, we need to really be together and push. And then once we launch this product, we can all take a break. And so, so it gets down to kind of the nuance of the team. But we were really trying to shift the conversation from the individual to the team and honestly bring in this concept. I think sometimes well-being can go too far in terms of just say, do what you want to do. Like actually bring in, you are responsible to your team. And, and there's, a, you can, there's a lot of flexibility there. But at some point, we're all coming together to accomplish this. And so trying to bring those together into the same conversation. I'm glad you mentioned that last piece. I'm in the middle of just planning some some workshop stuff around psych safety and mm-hmm. th- these these different levels kind of associated with take like Lencioni's, you know, the five dysfunctions of of teams and whatnot. Like one of these is accountability, yeah. showing up for yeah. each other, but also being nudged to yeah. show up for each other, which isn't always a pleasant thing. But to your earlier point, I think we sort of get rewarded by it. I, it. Sometimes it sounds like safe means I shouldn't feel uncomfortable at any point. And again, yeah. I just want to kind of highlight, you seem to be thoughtfully pushing back against that a bit. Yeah, no, I think that's such a great point. And actually, like, you know, with psychological safety, a lot of we always think of psychological safety as the safety part, right? Like, which is a yeah. really important part of it. Like, I'm going to be accepted. I can disagree with the group. I'm not going to be kicked out. But another part of it is absolutely accountability. And like, if I say I'm going to do something, you can just trust I'll do it or I'll let you know if something changes. Like that's really important for a team functioning. And I I think you're right that I think in some sense, we've maybe swung a little too far that like to have well-being means that everyone does what they need to do. And and there is this sense of like, well, how, how does it affect you if you're if you have something due at the end of the day and you can't get a hold of your teammate? Like that's really bad for your well-being. <laughs> and just this idea like that we affect each other and we're impacting we're impacting our each other's work. And so the one book I love is called Crucial Accountability, which is by the same I actually have it over here. It's by the same author as Crucial Conversations. It's the same author. Okay. And there okay. was another book that just came out. I ordered it, I haven't read it. It's called Compassionate Accountability. But I think it's this idea of like again, something that we tend to swing on, like accountability can be done in a very kind way, right? And this is like, you know, Kim Scott's idea of like radical candor, like, you can be direct with someone and also be really, really kind and, 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 and kind of problem solving oriented, right? Like, I'm not saying, why didn't you get this to me, you must be irresponsible. And what's wrong with you, you know, but more coming at it from a place of curiosity of just like, hey, this is this, this isn't working, like, let's collectively brainstorm, like, the solution space has to include, you know, what we have to get done and what, what we all need as people and let's brainstorm, you know. But yeah, I think that accountability is a really, really important part of it. There's a lot of both ands, not either ors in yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 Good. Exactly. Yeah. So from your your career until now to what you're doing right now, 
Kristen. So two things we'd love to ask you about in particular. So you recently started Zoogla Mental Health, an organization that creates scaled and personalized support for employees impacted by layoffs. And you started a podcast, Yourself at Work, which explores well-being, mental health and productivity in the workplace, including organizational change management and navigating transitions. Could you tell us about these two areas of your work and, and what motivated you to want to start these and, and what you're doing with them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I was impacted by Google's layoffs in January, and it was kind of an interesting phenomenon of like, it, it kind of created a cohort. Like there were, you know, like Google did a lot of layoffs. A lot of tech companies did layoffs all around the same time. And it was a very kind of interesting sort of sociological experience of like, there was this cohort of people that were all going through the same thing at the same time, which ended up has actually been a really surprisingly beautiful part of it is like, it's actually a community. And so Zooglers is kind of a name that, that people have come up with for former Googlers. And there's a someone named uh, Christopher Fong has been coordinating just for Zooglers broadly, like everything from, hey, I have a startup idea and I want to pitch it to people and see if anyone wants to work on it, to how do I write a resume, to, you know, whatever. Like he's been kind of coordinating gatherings of people more broadly and one thing that was coming up was a sort of a need for just peer support. And so when you need professional mental health support, you should get it. And Google was very generous and sort of extending the mental health support for many months post layoffs. So that's kind of, we always make sure people are aware of that. But what I started with a woman named Minha Pham was the peer support. And so we have both one-on-one support as well as group support where people can just, uh, we did like, you know, just a light training for it was, it was really cool just to see the outpouring of people that wanted to help, like either people that were impacted and wanted to help others, current employees, other people just, there was just like kind of this groundswell of saying, Hey, I want, I want to be there. We want to be there for each other. And so I did a training just in terms of, you know, like, like listening skills and, and particularly around like, when do you escalate for professional support, which is always really important. And then came up with like a matching system for people to have one-on-one peer support. And then we also have group support systems as well. And some of them, particularly some of the ones that were started really early, right after the layoff have just become really strong, strong networks. So I think it just kind of speaks to, I think with so many things you kind of, there's going back to this, people want to help each other. Like, I think a lot of times you kind of just need to put the scaffolding in place and then enable those kinds of connections to take place. So that's been, been really fun. And then the podcast is called Yourself at Work. And uh, Daryl Henrik and I started it. It will be like a limited run podcast. And Daryl was also at Google for a really long time. He left in 2022 and he was an engineering VP there and was a very strong advocate for mental health. Like he was very open about his own mental health journey and felt like that, you know, there hadn't been enough leaders speaking about it. And so from way before it was trendy, you know, back in 2008 or whatever, he was talking about mental health in the workplace. And so, so he and I connected and we started this podcast, which is, a, which is about everything that we're talking about here. Like how does mental health and well-being intersect in the context of a group of any large group of people who are trying to accomplish something? So we talk about everything from, you know, mental health to change management to burnout to empathy, like kind of a broad discussion of the intersection of mental health and the workplace. Great. Well, we want to be respectful of your time where we've arrived at our our signature question, the flourishing question. I want to amend it just slightly for you because we've talked so much, I think, about organizations. And I think we'll have listeners that are probably on the the top, so to speak, of their organizational hierarchy and some that are, are you know on the opposite end. 
So maybe we could come up with sort of one suggestion for both audiences, right? But the, the basic essence here is where's the juice worth the squeeze? If you were to suggest one thing that they do to help themselves either flourish or thrive at work or avoid burnout, dealer's choice, you go whichever route you want. Where do you think kind of the 80-20 is? Okay. So I think kind of coming at it from the perspective, if you're leading an organization, one of the most important things you can do is, is find out from your team, where are the points of friction? And friction is a phrase, Christoph Martel at Found EX talks a lot about the idea of friction. And he, it's basically defined as like, if you think about that word, it's something that's not good for either productivity or well-being, right? It's just like kind of an unnecessary hurdle. It could be like, you know, systems that are inefficient and don't talk to each other or teams that aren't getting along. And so you're always, yeah. you're just churning and debating, whatever. Like asking your team, like, where are the sources of friction? And then trying to remove those. Like that's more important than throwing the pizza party or, you know, saying how much you care about well-being. Like really try to do that. And I did this with the, the larger team I was a part of when I was in HR at Google. We did like a sort of employee satisfaction just for our own team. And what we found was like a lot of the classic things like psychological safety was high, like people loved their managers. And like the big pain point was very much just like a process. Like this process is really mm. inefficient and it takes a bunch of time. And I feel like it's always escalating and I don't know how to resolve it. And it was kind of interesting and surprising. And we're like, okay. So then like the well-being initiative actually ended up being like improving that process, right? And so just really like asking your team and, it, you know, there's probably not going to be one thing, but like sort of asking like, what are the things that are really just make your job frustrating? Because that's where you start getting the cynicism and the lack of efficacy, which can really erode things into burnout. We'll really see that on the individual level as well. It often seems like people are, oh, I'm going to add this next bell or whistle or activity or exercise or whatever it might be. Even if those are science-based and have a lot of legitimacy, sometimes it's easier to just say, what can I strip away and cut first? Yes. And then start yeah. to add, right? Yeah, yeah, really, really like that. And how about, you know, somebody who's not in the leadership position? Yeah, I think on the individual level, like one thing that's been really resonant for me lately is this idea of like, of kind of a return to, to your core and who you are. I think like so often in the sort of, there's so much advice out there about I should be doing, I should be running, I should be whatever, you know, and like really one of the things that's been most helpful for my own well-being is just to been like, for my life, from my childhood, like what kinds of things for me, I love writing, like just not for publishing, but just writing as kind of an outlet. Sure. And just like, I'm just going to do that more, right? Like, and, and so I think for me, like, well, my personal well being has been almost like a return and a simplicity, like the things that are just like, oh, that doesn't even count. That's just something I do, like, do more of that, like, because that is that is probably unique to you. And it is something that's going to be deeply restorative. So really, just nice. trying to have parts of your life that feel like they're really going with the grain. Great. Great. Excellent. Thank you very much, Kristen. So before we wrap up here, where can people learn more about you and your work? You've mentioned the Self at Work podcast. Where can people learn about Zugla and, and you more generally? Yeah, absolutely. So your Self at Work is the name of the podcast. It's on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And to learn about me, the best place is LinkedIn. Kristen Masco, first and last name is, is my LinkedIn handle. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Learned Real a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. We'll be in touch, Kristen. Yeah. Take care. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. 
Uh, you can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, we've got our own YouTube channel and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.